Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today, uh, we welcome Kevin Estella to the program. Kevin is a author of 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods. He is a he works in the bushcraft and survival field, where he works as a lead instructor for fieldcraft survival, world traveler, martial arts instructor. Uh, you've seen some of his work and appearances and publications and everything from History Channel, uh, Recoil Network, American Frontier Magazine, uh, Survivor's Edge. Uh, Kevin, it's great to have you on here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, John. It's uh, I know before we hit record here, we we're kind of talking about, but when I started the podcast. Um, like most people, I thought the world was ending and my field in the security world was kind of changed up a little bit. So I started falling into was I spent the first year or so planting stuff, learning about berries, different plants. I got this app that if you take a picture of it, it'll tell you if it's poison. Like I, I love learning about that stuff. And I know it's a daffodil, but I just want to take the picture and prove that it's a daffodil. Right. And I realized I, I wish I knew, got more versed or fell more in love with this idea of surviving or just being outdoors more. Now, I had parents that always encouraged me to make the mud pies and play outside till it's dark out. But I wish as I got older, like I'm in my later 30s now, but I wish in my 20s I spent more time camping or learning about how to start a fire. It's like for you to be in that field for as long as you have, it's it, like to kind of talk me through that. Like, because I know with your dad's upbringing, Talk about in, uh, war and surviving in the woods and jungles. Uh, and then you became a teacher. But it's like this whole time, you're as you get to this level you are now, has this been something that's always been like, were you always this fortunate to be this grounded, literally, in the earth and society like this? Well, I'll say that the survival community has changed a lot in the time that I, I've been immersed in it. And I'll say that if we were to like put a defining date, like when I started putting content out to the world, it was 1999. Right. In 1999, I was working at Eastern Mountain Sports. I already had been a kayaking and a canoeing instructor. I was in college. I'm, I'm working at a, at a retail store, learning all the technical aspects of the clothes. And I meet a friend of mine named Brian Jones. And Brian's like, hey, uh, I see you have a knife clipped to your pocket. Oh, you're carrying a multi-tool. Oh, like we just started talking about knives. He goes, there's this thing called an online discussion board called Blade Forums. I'm a moderator. You should join it. Meanwhile, I'm thinking like, what the hell's a, a discussion board, right? And for some of the listeners who may be younger than I am, you know, this is before Facebook, before you had the ability to communicate with people online. So I join up and I start seeing people talking about stuff that I was always interested in, right? And we're, they're talking about survival kits and they're talking about survival knives and they're talking about the bushcraft community. And over time, I mean, in a relatively short amount of time, that community exploded, right? Like you had a lot of different companies starting to market knives as bushcraft knives instead of just survival knife. And and listen, ever since, you know, uh, 82, when First Blood came out, people were buying oh, survival yes. knives. Like one of my favorite movies ever. Um, but people started talking about bushcraft and fieldcraft and long-term survival in the great outdoors. So in the early 2000s, that community shifted to doing that, especially with the emergence of TV shows like Survivor Man and, and uh, Man vs. Wild and things like that. Uh, 
that's really what happened in the early 2000s. And then next thing you know, all these networks recognized that that was a winning formula. So they started putting out all these ridiculous shows, every <laughs> concept you could possibly imagine, man. Like anything, they threw a whole bunch of stuff at the wall hoping it was going to stick. So a perfect example, I got auditioned for a show called uh, Remote Survivor where they're like, oh, you're going to be a, uh, in the earpiece of a person surviving off the land and you're going to see what they have because of a GoPro and it's going to be about them and you're just going to be sitting back, you know, drinking cappuccinos basically while they're doing it. I'm like, oh, all right. I uh, never got on that show, never wanted to be on that show, but I did it just to appease my my agent at the time. Uh, but man, I'll tell you, it's it's been a very interesting ride, you know, right now with, with everything and especially the past few years. And, you know, since 1999, there have been ebbs and flows in the survival community with, with interest when popular movies comes out and things like that. But lately, COVID, right? Everyone's talking about COVID. People are talking about the blackout that we had here in North Carolina. They're talking about power stations getting shot up. There, there's, there's definitely an understanding that these skills are relevant now. And my you know, social value, so to speak, has skyrocketed because I can provide skill sets that I enjoy sharing with people uh, to people that have never tried them before. What I love about, and I do suggest people follow Fieldcraft Survival and stuff on social media, but when you go to the Instagram page, I feel like I learned more of those clips and reels and stuff than I would in a 30-minute program that actually adds this manufactured drama or other bullshit. I just love the fact that I wish, and I think the shows that are successful are the ones that actually have the people that are grounded, that don't openly come out and say, hey, I'm an expert or I'm going to, this is the only way to do this. The best people I see in that field are the ones that, watch someone else and be like, oh, I didn't realize you could start a fire that way, but this is how I do it and that type of stuff. It's it's kind of cool you have that approach to that as well. Yeah, man, you got to – and this is true of so many different industries, right? We At Fieldcraft, we have a lot of firearms trainers, some very talented trainers, Rick Lofton, Kirsten Morgan. Yeah. I mean the list goes on and on and on. Matt Vandy, Matt Shea, right? All these guys. Um, we got some super talented instructors, and every one of them will tell you, here are five ways to accomplish task XYZ, whatever it is. And they'll tell you, learn all five, but find the one that works for you. They're not telling you this is the only way you can do it. And they're always open to learning. And if you are training with someone, again, in any field, in any recreation, and they tell you, you must do it my way or else you're wrong, you probably should be the one raising the red flag saying, this guy has an agenda, a personal agenda, and they're not looking out for you. They're looking out for their best interests, which is often driven by, by financial gain. Right. Is it tougher for you as an instructor? If Would you rather deal with someone who has no experience or someone that may be a prior military or someone with ego that thinks they know how to do this? Like what's funner and like what's tougher for you? Well, I'll tell you, I, the personal satisfaction comes from the person that's completely green because I can see a, a greater exponential jump in their skill set, their knowledge, their desire to learn. Uh, but personally, uh, selfishly, something that is a lot of fun is crushing people's egos because – I've always been of the of the belief that true knowledge comes from the questions you ask, not the statements you make. And I can walk a person into a corner with what they believe is the correct answer, and I can destroy their logic. I can destroy their, their argument just by asking questions. And the next thing you know, they come to the realization and they feel like they screwed up as opposed to me, you know, being the, the bad guy because I'm, I'm bringing truth into the equation. But uh, personally, I love teaching the newbie. But I also get a lot of satisfaction out of out of uh, dis, you know, disproving a lot of the the rumors and the the half truths that have existed in the industry for so long. 
how often does it happen where something you've learned maybe five, 10 years ago, or even pre-COVID, where a couple of years later, you're kind of like, well, maybe that wasn't the smartest way. This is the best way to do it. Like how often is like technology evolved with survival and like trends and stuff? Is that stuff always changing? Or is like the the basic, most primitive aspect of starting a fire, the core principles of that, that never really changes or does it? Yeah, so, so you nailed it. Um, the, the core concepts never change. Okay. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I posted about the concept of fuel and wick. So it's the idea of having something absorbent that acts as a wick and having some type of accelerant that acts as a fuel. So whether that's petroleum or alcohol or wax, fuel and wick. Well, Vaseline and cotton balls have been around for fire starting for for decades. There are some people that will say, oh, I invented it or, oh, I've got a special formula. But the concept predates them. So that type of thing uh, changing concepts, not regularly, but the technology is constantly changing. When you think about it, look at Zippos versus Bic lighters. Yeah. Uh, people will say that, oh, the Bic lighter is superior. And I carry a Bic lighter every day, thousand one second fires. But if I had a choice between carrying a Bic lighter or a Zippo lighter into extreme cold, it's going to be the Zippo. So now there's a real, like a, like a renaissance of people wanting to carry uh, liquid fuel lighters like that. Like whether it's the Zippo or the Exotac uh, Titan light or any of the other, you know, wick and fuel lighters instead of the gas lighters. So it's funny because the trends, they disappear and then they come back again. But people don't realize that it's an old school trick just repackaged by someone who's really clever at marketing, you know. So uh, so it's fun when someone's like, oh, check this out. And I'm like, I saw that in a magazine. And, and I'll tell you, Fieldcraft, we were guilty of that. I must have missed this product meeting or maybe I wasn't invited to it. I don't know. But uh, our company developed like a fire starter. And they're like, what do you think of this, Kev? I'm like, it's terrible. Now, I'm the guy in the meeting that will probably get written up for being a little too honest, a little too forward. Um, and I'll even do that to, to the company I work for because the way I look at it is if you don't admit something's wrong, you'll never improve. So I said, it's terrible. They're like, why do you say that? I'm like, watch this. And I got a 1997 edition of American Survival Guide because I used to subscribe to that from 1994 yeah. to 2001. And I got a, a 1997 edition of American Survival Guide. I, I flipped to a summer issue and I'm like, look, here's the fire starter that you said is the latest, greatest thing that came out how many years ago? And they're like, oh. and I'm like, yeah, you should probably ask the guy who's been in the industry for a while who may say not necessarily a great idea. And again, I have no skin in the game. I'm not making money off of it. The company is, but. You know, it, it just it blows my mind sometimes people forget about, you know, this the skill sets or the gear that's been out for a long time already. When it comes to like the EDC for the those that are obviously follow the podcast, everyday carry items, you're you, we again when you post your social media, when you post your what you carry, whatever, it's very sometimes when you see that stuff, it's like these really over the top, like ridiculous crap. Everything in your pocket you show is like something I would carry. And I'm a security professional, but it's also something a single mom would carry or a teacher or a guy at a job site or a chef. And it's like, kind of explain to me why everyday carry doesn't, you don't need the most high end crazy stuff. It's basic stuff that suits your needs. and isn't over the top. Yeah. Spot on. Uh, so there's a concept that mission dictates gear. Okay, it's a military concept. It's a it's a concept even outside of the military. If your mission is to educate, well, guess what? You probably should have some textbooks in your hand to to share with your students. Um, so mission dictates gear. Everything that I carry, and I'll I'll go through it on my person, explaining it each placement, whatnot. Everything you carry addresses some level of of weakness that we have as human beings. So 
the knives that I carry. I carry a Swiss Army knife in my right front pocket. I carry some type of folding knife, and I carry a fixed blade. People say, why do you carry three knives? Well, one is none, two is one, that whole, whole expression. The Swiss Army knife has a lot of functions. It's also my social knife. It's the one that I can pull out and people say, oh, you're an outdoor education. Of course, you're going to have a Swiss Army knife. It has very low weapon signature, high tool signature, so it's easy to pull out. The folding knife is the utility knife. Uh, it has a more robust blade than the Swiss Army knife, still very low on the, the weapon signature. A lot of people carry fixed blade, I'm sorry, uh, carry folding knives. It, it gets more of the job done. The fixed blade is for defensive purposes, right? Filipino martial arts instructor, I'm going to carry a fixed blade knife right. on me with a strong hand. Uh, now, if I go to the pouch that the Swiss Army knife is carried in, there's a ferro rod. That ferro rod creates thousands of potential fires with every scrape. It can be used for a signal. It can be used for a quick light, it can be used for fi starting fire. Now, if I go to my left pocket, there's roughly six feet of uh, paracord in there, which I use cordage all the time, every single day. And it's very easy for me to you know, tie something up with, with that cordage. It's easy for me to use that cordage uh, to do a demonstration on a knot. I, I carry cordage. I always find a use for it. There's a Bic lighter, 1,001 second fires, <clears throat> also another form of light. There is a stream light, micro uh, USB light in there. We can't see in the dark. So right. that addresses that weakness. Now I have the ability to operate in the dark. Um, there's chapstick in there. You never know when you got to kiss someone. Uh, back pocket, there's a, there's a bandana. That bandana is uh, just a, it's actually just a piece of um, OD green cloth as a triangular bandage. It can be used for a lot of different things. Uh, use it as a hobo bundle, use it to uh, use it as a pressure bandage, use it to cover my mouth on this smoky area, use to grab pots off a of fire. My wallet obviously is in my back pocket pistol, spare mags. Uh, and then <clears throat> what my phone is resting against right now doing this podcast is my fanny pack. And in there, I've got a spare mag. I've got tourniquet, things like that. But all of that stuff, uh, all of it addresses realistic needs, both right. possibility and probability. I get it. People want to carry stuff to make them sound a lot cooler than they are. And, you know, we always say at Fieldcraft training that we teach real skills for real people. We get guys that show up and they're like, this is what I carry. And I've got, you know, seven reloads. And it's like, you have seven reloads, you know, and I'm, you know, right. I'm using some hyperbole here. But uh, if you have seven reloads, it's like, why are you carrying all seven pistol mags and not a rifle mag? And a rifle, you know, like, right. There, people have these, these ideas of what they need, but it's not grounded in reality because they're not a real person in their mind. Uh, and what you got to do is you got to, <clears throat> you got to keep it real. You know, like it's cool when people show up to our classes and they're like, oh, you actually carry that? Man, I, I never thought you were so real. It's like, why would we want to be fake? And we also joke around. We say a lot of the people with the greatest number of followers on Instagram are also the fakest people you'll ever meet. Like they're just phonies. And as soon as the camera's turned off of them, they're not that person. They're not as cool as right. you think. So, uh, so yeah, man, everything that you carry in your everyday carry, whether it's me, you, any of the listeners, it should be grounded in reality. And it should also be tools that you can actually use. Um, not to, to digress, but like there are people that carry medical kits with needle decompression. Yeah, it's... And it's like, do you know how to do that? Well, right. no, then don't carry it. You know what I mean? Like, well, what if I, what if I find someone who can do it on me? It's like, will they know where your kit is? Like, there's a lot of questions you can ask that again, destroys their, their logic. 
Right. Now, when you so when you get into a car or a vehicle or like whatever, uh, like like myself, I carry one of my knives. The knife I carry has like the glass breaker on it, but it's also enough where if I have to cut the seatbelt or break the glass, I found over the years that I'm, I'm more compl- like in terms of if I'm gonna be in a car somewhere, like I'm putting stuff in an area where if I need to grab it. It's more conducive to me in the event the car flips over, there's an accident, or like what is is that something that takes training? Or obviously, it's a personal preference, right? If someone's not really thinking like that, they're not going to maybe do that. But for anyone that is listening to this, where it's kind of like, what can they do to kind of put themselves in a situation where it's like maybe they're at a restaurant, they got to do something differently? Or like, what is stuff out there they could do with their everyday carry that can make those those type of tools actually more vital to their livelihood if they do need to use them? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, it's all about staging, right? It's setting yourself up for success before you actually need something. So people leave the house, and before they leave the house, maybe they press check their pistol. They make sure that they have a round chamber, they've got the mag topped off, that type of thing. You can apply that concept of the press check to every single thing in your in your kit, making sure that everything's in good working order. And it doesn't take very long to go through your gear and make sure, hey, does my lighter actually work? Does my Swiss Army knife have a sharp edge? Uh, is my tourniquet staged the way that I had it staged, you know, 364 days out of the year, but that one day, that one day we trained, oh my gosh, you know, it's all left in, in, you know, a twisted mess. With your vehicle, when you go and you get a rental vehicle, or if you yeah. want to do this with your, your regular vehicle, carry one of those rescue me window breakers on a UV protectant. I always have one around my, my wrist, a UV uh, protected rubber band, put that on the rear view mirror of the car so the passenger can grab it the driver can grab it it's in an accessible place um you know to prevent carjackings put your luggage in the front seat of the car and move your seat all the way i'm sorry move the passenger seat all the way forward so someone would have to really fight to get through that car uh, uh cargo right that's in the front seat to get to you and obviously lock your doors make sure that when you get in the auto unlock and the auto lock isn't on um, or I should say auto lock is on, but auto unlock is not because there are reports of people waiting for cars to be turned off. They know that it's auto unlock and they jump right in. The other thing is your tourniquets. You can put your tourniquets on the O-Craft or the, the Hail Mary handles right. um, because that's a, a place where people grab instinctually and it should be within arm's reach and you should have one for every passenger in the vehicle. Um, there are so many different ways you can stage your gear for success. And as far as getting back to your question, does it come with training, whether you call it training or just being aware, listen to people who have been there and done that. Listen to people who are trainers and people who live this lifestyle and find out where the line is between what's real and what's transferable versus what is fantasy and what you'll never be able to attain because maybe that that cool guy or cool gal has a piece of gear that is outside of your budget. Well, find the concept you know, find the lower budget solution to address that concept. And now you have that capability. So all it requires is people to just become informed. Um, and then from that, that information, it means that you have to act on it. You have to go out and stage your vehicle that way. You need to, to do whatever you need to do to, to get up to standard. So yeah, I'd say it, it does require a little bit of training, but you can consider watching a YouTube video training. Right. One of I've always like I think the media has like this narrative when it comes to doomsday preppers. Like and I and here's the thing. I think some of these people may be a little over the top. I don't know their yeah. situation. I don't, but here's the thing. Worldwide pandemic, 
power outages. I mean, the stuff that's been happening the last couple of years, it's greatly affecting people are dying because of it. But my, I guess my question is, is the media so anti-Doomsday Prepper and in terms of like the censorship of your type of background, like bushcraft or survival, is it scare people to the point or are you having so much truce of what you're doing, whether it's actual organic remedies or things you're doing that scares people to getting the narrative out there? Because there's been people I've followed in the last couple of years that I don't see their posts or it's like a weird type of thing where it's like, why can't I see this guy had to start a fire because what happened in Buffalo with those seven people dying in the cars, none of those people had fire sticks. No one had any needs to make a fire. It's like, well, maybe if they had the information, they'd be prepared. Right. So what's going on with that? Well, I think the recent disclosure of the, the Twitter files, right. Or the Twitter right. hate yep. call it, is showing that there is truth to what people are saying, <laughs> where certain voices are getting censored. And, you know, for someone who works at Fieldcraft, we consider ourselves partly a media company. And I'm, you know, being the podcast host and the, yeah. the guy behind the Twitter feed and all that, I'm constantly looking at analytics. If I accidentally or deliberately like a post in the morning hours uh, of someone who might be considered very conservative, I will definitely see a decrease in the number of people that follow me, uh, click on my stuff and whatnot. I think on a larger scale outside of social media, getting to mainstream media, you are seeing a general acceptance of prepping as long as it doesn't involve anything that could be considered violent. So if someone says, hey, I, I have food just in case of a power outage, the media is like, hey, congratulations. I have blankets in case you know the, the, the heat goes out. Hey, congratulations. Hey, I carry a, a firearm just in case someone... Uh, accosts me during civil unrest oh no you shouldn't do that right you know i think anytime that there's there's reference to violence or the potential for violence the media is saying absolutely not you can't do that but there's such a double standard with the media because you think about this if i were let's say i mean well, whatever let's just use me so let's say that i i never trained in martial arts i've never owned a firearm anything like that and i'm walking down the street and you know Men and women can be raped. So I get raped. Now, suddenly, I take an interest in self-defense. People in the media would say, oh, good on him for getting training, right? Good on him. But if you've never been the victim, or my term that I like telling people is stop saying you're a victim. You're a survivor of an incident because then it takes the power away from the, the perpetrator. Right. So let's say that a survivor of something violent right? Survivor of domestic abuse, survivor of rape, survivor of, of a school shooting says, I'm going to carry a, a firearm on me. So I'm not going to become a, a victim. Well, the media doesn't like that, right? Um, if you, if you have been victimized, they're okay with it. But if you've never been victimized, then there's this double standard. Like you should not do that. Why would you do that? You're crazy. You're ridiculous. So you, if people are aware that there's this double standard that's out there, and it exists not just in the media, but it also exists in small social circles. Your colleagues at work probably would not take any offense to you carrying pepper spray if you were mugged the week before. Right. But if you never had a history of violence in your life, the your colleagues would probably say, oh, you're just, here's the word, paranoid. And that is crap. It's not paranoia because there's possibility and probability something could happen to you. Well, with your background as a teacher, which I find amazing how you kind of became a teacher that jumped into the survival full time, 
But with like school shootings and situations that are happening out there and this training, and I get why some parents and guardians are very, well, I don't want my son learning how to survive a shooter or a bomb threat type thing, but <clears throat> that stuff is happening. How do you is like how do you break that narrative where it's like it's okay to learn and rehearse this stuff because bad guys are gonna be bad guys and you have to be prepared regardless. You know, I will say that I taught at a high school, Bristol Central High School, that was about 25 minutes away from Sandy Hook Elementary School. Jesus. 25 minutes away, maybe 30, 35 at the most. The day after Sandy Hook, I went to the hardware store and I bought a chain and I bought a carabiner. And in my classroom, there was a support beam that's in the side of it, like an exposed beam yep. that I looped the chain around. And then I moved all of my book cabinets in front of the, the door had panels of glass in it. And then there was like a window to the side of the, the door. So you could break the window, reach in and open the handle. So I moved bookshelves in front of that. Now I had the chain that went around to the door handle and it made it impossible for someone to just force the door in unless they were breaking the chain or ripping the handle off. It would slow someone down. So I did that after, after Sandy Hook. And I told all my students, I'm like, guys, something terrible happened yesterday. And I always told my kids, I'm like, guys, I will never lie to you. I have no incentive to lie to you. Right. I might say, I can't tell you that, but I will never lie to you. And my students were very, very assured, were reassured that they were safe in my room to the point where they used to joke and say, if something bad happened, we're running to Estella's room because he's going to look out for us. Um, and, it, and it was flattering, right? It, it meant a lot to me to know that they cared to, or they knew that I cared about them. And that they 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 recognize that because then it improved their performance in the classroom because they weren't worried about other stuff. They could just be a student. Um, I think what's important for teachers to do is to level with your kids and say, here are the national statistics. 30 to 45 seconds at a door before a shooter moves on. You need to also recognize how shooters kill people in classrooms and recognize what line of sight is. Because if there's line of sight, there's line of bullets right? We can't curve bullets like the movie wanted. And if you were to take a laser pointer and use the laser yeah. pointer with extreme angles of the door, you could put a strip or even a, a permanent marker because they're going to clean the floors anyway at the end of the year. We'll get rid of the permanent marker. But you could show the students the visible line in the classroom that they have to hide behind. You can easily put a hammer in your classroom. Look up the stats of how many people die every year from a hammer. And you can say you're just using the hammer for putting things in the wall in the back of the room. Um, I had a birthday cake knife that was <laughs> never, ever, ever cut a cake. And it had a pink handle uh, that my friend Dan Eastland made for me. And it was in my closet and students never questioned it. It was right there in the open. Um, and I locked my closet so kids couldn't get to a knife. But uh, I mean, you just have to level with your kids and say, this is a reality. This is what we will do if things happen. And then also tell them that they're not gonna get in trouble if they survive and they happen to get out of the building instead of rushing back to a classroom right. or an open door, if you can get the hell away from a shooter and get out into the next county, right, run. Um, you don't need to stay at the school. So if your parents are telling you, look, if you're by a window and you can get out that window, get out the freaking window, right? Uh, apologize later on. Um, and yeah, it is kind of funny going back to what you said about me being a teacher. Everyone knew when I was a teacher that I did other stuff, right? Like I'd come in with a black eye or at one point I had a separated rib from jujitsu and everyone's like, what'd you do, man? And I'm like, I was fighting last night. Writing like, papers. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so so they were they they didn't mind that I did that because they also knew right like what are the three fundamentals of someone being a serious threat to you desire opportunity and ability yes I had the ability and I had opportunity to harm people but I had no desire to harm anyone so I was actually on your side um so yeah it it was a fun jump moving from public education where I was basically the black sheep who you know it was into training and owned guns and white conservative straight male right. to a field where I'm just one of many you know right is it fair to say that parents or maybe even teachers or how come your type of with your type of background how often do you get brought into elementary grade schools high schools colleges to kind of talk about hey Virginia Tech is an active shooter but if you had carried or if a couple of kids in this classroom had carried something in their backpack, which I don't know what the laws are in each state in terms of what school laws are, what weapons you can bring in, but there's stuff you can bring in. I mean, you can bring knitting needles onto an airplane now, or still you never could. So it's like, I could do damage with that. What's some stuff that these kids, they can bring in there that could help, God forbid there is a situation, because there's got to be something, right? So, so with kids, what I would say is kids need to be part of the solution. They don't have to be the solution. And, and in fact, the responsibility falls on the adult. So right. the adult in the room should be the one that is addressing whatever threats at the door. The kids, they need to stay kids. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that a kid can't have certain things on them to be part of the response to the aftermath, right? Like kids can learn how to put on a tourniquet. Kids can learn how to... Uh, assess someone. They can learn how to call 911, right? And I'm talking the full range of kids, like all the way to 18 years of age. A kid can learn how to, to be responsible. Um, it probably wouldn't be the, the brightest thing in the world for a kid to break out a weapon in the middle of a fight. Right. Um, Look, I got this. Um, because a responding officer might see that kid as another threat. Um, of course, listen, I'm not advocating for kids to have weapons, but if a kid had something that was saving my life, I probably wouldn't want them to have any charges pressed against them, you know, after right. that. Um, but kids can definitely know the the protocols, right? If they hear gunshots, close the door, put the chain on the door. If the door opens in, here are door stops, push the heavy stuff in the way, um, get to where you need to be, close the blinds, all that stuff. There's no reason why kids should be hidden from the reality of that type of, of event because they happen, you know, and we are only planning for the single shooter or at most two shooters like Harrison Klebold from Columbine. Yep. But if we look at like Beslin, Russia, right, where there were hundreds of people who died because a terrorist group went into the school, schools are highly, highly vulnerable. And we've been only seeing the copycats. And that's why we're seeing lone gunmen or, again, at most two people or maybe the let's pull the fire alarm, get around the courtyard and then start shooting. But we're not seeing the potential uh, that could happen if you actually had people with training and a plan and coordination. You had mentioned uh, a minute ago the, the power outage threats and stuff. It seems like every other day there's some sort of possible attack or an outage. What should we be doing now as basic citizens to get ready for that if that does happen? Okay, so uh, I'll explain it within the context of what happened here in North Carolina. So we had uh, a substation shot up. And people lost power. I, I got mine back after like 48 hours. Some people lost it for five days. Uh, some people lost it upwards of seven because they were doing the rolling power outages yes. to re redo the circuits. So uh, what we need to do is, number one, address the heat in your house, right? 
how do you maintain your home at a comfortable level where you can say, I'm sheltering in place. I don't need to go out um, because you need to address this almost like the rule of threes in survival. You can survive about three hours exposed to the elements without adequate clothing. So I think of it this way. What can you do in your house? How about put on more clothing? Um, how about close off the rooms that are known to be drafty and cold, right? You don't need to live in all of your house during an outage. You can live in a very small area and you can warm it with some, which is body heat, right? Like we are human beings radiate heat. So if you have a family and people are moving around, right. go to any dojo and watch what happens when you get a bunch of sweaty dudes rolling around. Yeah. Everything, it's like green. Fogs up, yeah. yeah. So apply that concept, right? The Almost like the the life capsule concept of like a, a space station. Shut off everything, live in a small area. Another thing, you got to take care of your, your sanitation. You already should have a stockpile of water. Fill up your bathtub uh, and use that, that water. Like let's say for whatever reason you, you have a pump, um, you can get water stored up. You can buy rain barrels. You can do things like that. You should have water stored up so you can manually flush your toilet. Uh, you should have water stored up so you can cook food, you can bathe, you can do all sorts of stuff. You can consume that water too. Another thing, lighting. Uh, candles are fine. LED lights. This day and age, there's no reason why people should not have LED lights to light up their way. Uh, LEDs are a lot safer than propane lanterns. They're a lot safer than candles. They're inexpensive. The bulbs never die. They just need batteries. So I would say stock up on, on LEDs. Um, another thing, have a plan with your neighbors. Um, you know, your cooler, your refrigerator might not be running. Well, what's going to happen to all that food? Use that opportunity to get in good with your neighbors. Have a big feast. Uh, you're not going to die of, of starvation if you have a power outage, but here's a chance to actually get in good with your neighbors. Feed them something great on your propane grill outside or however you decide to cook it. Um, and use that as a bonding experience because your neighbors are going to be looking out for you. You should be looking out for them. Right. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on with power outages. Uh, here in North Carolina, they happen pretty frequently because the small grass, I'm sorry, the small root system of pine trees is constantly resulting in trees tipping over, taking out lines. So it's not a matter of if it happens, it's when, you know? Um, and then all the other stuff after that, if you are going to go in your car, make sure that you're stopping at stoplights. Uh, they're not going to be lit. It doesn't mean you can just drive right through them. And you're probably going to get into an accident if you do. So a lot of it comes down to common sense, but unfortunately it's not very common. <laughs> right. You, it seems like you're very proactive versus reactive, which I assume uh, is the only way you really should be. That's how I am in my career. And kind of talk about that because you have this idea of the feeder mindset, which I think is amazing. Yeah. So, so feeder mindset comes from, from Sayak Kali. I've been a Sayak uh, associate level instructor for years now. Uh, I'm a level six. So, you know, within the the ranks of the SIOC community, there aren't many instructors in the world. Uh, I've been around for a while and I will tell you that so much of what I've done, I attribute back to SIOC and the lessons that I learned. And one of them is feeder. Uh, so in life, you have three different types of people. You have feeder, receivers, and observers. So the feeder is someone who's proactive. They make things happen. They see problems before they exist and they take steps to, to prevent them. The feeder is the one that takes control. They're the, the get it done type of person. The receiver is someone who lets things happen to them. We all know someone who's kind of like a receiver, probably someone who walks into, you know, work the next day and says, oh, my car engine seized up. Yeah, I was supposed to get an oil change, but I just pushed it. And it's like, you let that happen to yourself, right? right. You, you <laughs> let someone control you. You let your circumstances dictate your, the, the consequences, right? 
Then there are the observers. And observers are people who are just watching from the outside and they don't have to necessarily be a feeder or a receiver, but they're just seeing things happen, right? So in SIOC, we teach from those three perspectives, feeder, receiver, and observer. That's why you'll often see three people in a training group. Um, but that feeder mindset is something that when I started training in SIOC in 2007, it just resonated with me because I was like, I'm going to put a Swiss army knife in my pocket. So I don't have to go look for a sharp object to cut through things. That's feeder. Um, I'm going to stay in physical shape because if I'm teaching a class and I've got to literally fireman's carry someone off of a mountain, I never want number one. I don't want students to doubt my ability. If people meet me, they should say, Oh yeah, he can do oh, all yeah, that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But number two, if something really bad were to happen, I never want to live with the regret of saying, well, yeah, you know, I love cheesecake, which I really do, but I Same. ate so much cheesecake, I became a fat ass and I couldn't lift someone off the mountain. That someone was me. So, so being a, being a feeder means that you are, you're taking the steps needed to become a better version of yourself daily. Uh, and you have choices every day of whether you want to improve or stay status quo, but I guarantee, and we've seen this in, in and, and we've heard people talk about this. The day that you take off is the day that your enemy's training, right? The day that you you say, oh, I'm too tired. Someone else is saying, let's do this. Um, so as a feeder, it pushes you to become a better version of yourself. And again, it's very, very proactive instead of reactive. How When you're an instructor in a class of, say, beginner people, would, you, would they introduce themselves on the first impression, you'd probably be like, oh, that person's a leader, or that probably is an alpha, or this person's a follower. But how often through the course of your training, no matter what it is, have you realized that or seen a feeder actually be the person you didn't think it was, or the leader actually buckle under pressure? All right. So I'll, I'll give you real world examples based on one of the courses that we teach. We teach a class called Breakout. Breakout is one of our most expensive courses, but it has to be because we're using multiple facilities we're teaching students how well i don't want to give a lot of it away but right. they're learning vehicle dynamics behind the wheel uh shooting to and from the vehicle things like that they're they're repelling they're doing a lot of different things and we usually change leadership multiple times in a course so if we have 12 people we might have 12 different leaders yep. we may only have six different leaders but many times we'll find the natural leader Many times we'll find someone who has gained the authority of everyone uh, by just doing things, getting things done, but maybe they don't necessarily step up, but they're the one that the person that's put in charge is asking, hey, uh, what do you think of this, John? What do you think of this, you know, Mark? So we will find those typecasts, right? Like we find the leader, we find the follower, uh, we find the worker, right? There's always someone who's a joker, right? Like where you know, we might be pushing them really hard and they're just making jokes because that's what they do, right? Some people do that all the time and they have a very strong Joker vibe, but sometimes the Joker actually says something that stirs up the group to a point where it improves the group. And, and listen, I'm, I'm a Joker in a lot of different ways, which gets me in trouble sometimes at work, but my joking has an element of truth. And sometimes yes. people don't realize that you know, by me saying, oh, so this is what we're doing now. Oh, this is awesome. Great job. I use a lot of sarcasm, by the way. So that doesn't always, uh, you know, strike a chord with, with the people that are my my uh, supervisors, but whatever. Um, so in any case, the uh, we, we find that people will fall back into their, their natural roles. Um, there are people that just want to put their head down and grind, you know, 
but it's fun when you give that person a chance to become the leader or when you take that joker who likes to undermine everyone and it's like let's see you lead and then you see them fall apart um so you should be and it doesn't you don't have to be an instructor to do this if you're working in an environment you should constantly you know typecasting people and you should know who are the people and if you just want to typecast them into two categories are they part of the solution or are they part of the problem they're one of those two right um are they leading or are they following they're one of those two um and a leader doesn't have to be the loudest voice in the room. Right. The leader could be the one, again, who is the most successful. The leader could be the one who is the most knowledgeable. Again, they don't have to be the one that's the most outspoken. So I highly encourage people to learn from their training, learn from the stuff that we do, where we look at people and we want to bring out those good tendencies and say, this is what a good leader will do to a group. And at the end, we'll do an after action. And it's like, who is the most valuable person the whole week? And many times students don't realize that we're doing that, but it's good to get that, you know, pat on the back and recognize, Hey, your actions, they're positive. Do more of that someday. And people message back and be like, ever since this class, when you pushed us and it was uncomfortable, I no longer find what I have to do at work uncomfortable because right. I found something harder, you know, it's all good stuff. And I found that the most or the, the, the best leaders of my life, whether career or personal, whatever, uh, they are the ones that also ask just as many questions as the workers or the followers, or they're always willing to learn. Like someone like you, you're not going to teach something you haven't done a million times yourself and failed at a million times. And so I kind of, that's what I love about leaders. It's like, they're willing to just, because there's like that meme out there where it's like, you have the leader that's whipping the, the workers, pulling the yeah. head as opposed to walking with them. And it's, there is something to that. I think if, if it, being a leader is mean you're perfect. And I think there's this misconception where, if you are a leader, you have no faults, like you're the best. It's like, that's not always the case. Right. And if you think about someone who says, uh, taking this to like the combatives world, like a, a jujitsu player, if someone in jujitsu says, oh, I've never tapped bullshit. <laughs> right. If you're, if you're a high ranking belt in jujitsu, you've tapped probably more than anyone else in the room. You should, uh, because if you're not tapping, you're not learning, right? right? You, you need to know what the weaknesses are and then it makes you better. Uh, and I like breaking it down as you're either a leader or you're a boss, right? The boss is the one who's doing the whipping, right? Do this, do this. And there are some terrible bosses out there. There are people out there that are truly leaders. And one of the reasons why I wanted to come to North Carolina is because Kevin Owens, who's my my, yeah. my boss, my leader, he's the one who got me to, to work at the company. Even though Glover, you know, gave me the offer, Kevin Owens is the one that solidified the deal. Uh, and I will, I'd walk over glass for Kevin Owens because he's a hell of a leader. And even though he's technically my boss, he's more of my leader. Right. Uh, and, you know, there are folks out there who think to be a good leader, you have to bark orders. Well, you've got to lead by example, you know, and if you can't lead by example, if you can't demonstrate uh, or show, hey, I've, I've been where you are, right? I used to scrub the floors. Well, Kevin Owens will still scrub the floors. You know, they need to be done. But there are people out there that are like, I can't do that. I'm the leader. It's like, dude, get off your high horse, lose the right. ego. We're all in this together, right? Um, and, and you know, the, the interesting thing with with leaders and bosses and, and you know, uh, establishing rapport, there are many people who are afraid to make mistakes. A good leader will say, all right, let's try this. There's a chance I might not get it, but I'll explain why I didn't get it. So getting back to your point about me doing a demo, you know, I always say that if you're learning from an instructor, they should demo, 
an inst- a good instructor yeah. should demo. I mean, I can I can tell you what I used to do 15 years ago, right when I was a lot younger. Um, but if I can't do that now, maybe I shouldn't be the one that I I delegate right. authority to to demo. Maybe I do I give it to the kid who's in his 20s. But one of the things I always say is if they're if you're following someone who is afraid to show you, that's a huge red flag. Yeah. Uh, or if they're afraid to fail and explain, huge red flag. I don't get my demos every single time. If I'm doing friction fire and I don't get it, then I explain why. Hey, there's moisture in the air. Or maybe I should have given it 10 seconds more. Um, I don't demo the hand drill because I had rotator cuff surgery and I have a hard time with the grinding I still get in my shoulder. So I tell people that. I'm like, look, I'm human. Guess what? I'm going to pack to my weakness now. You right. Know? Um, but again, a lot of these leaders, a lot of these bosses get the ego. And that ego can cripple them in terms of performance. And it can also chop the legs out from underneath them in terms of respect. You know, leaders need to always ask that question. Am I effective? But then the follow-up question is, am I respected? Because you can be respected and disliked, but you can also be disliked and not respected. And that's the worst. And I don't care if a person doesn't like me, but they should respect me and they should recognize, well, I don't like him, but he knows his stuff. Right. I'm okay with that. But if someone says, I don't like him, I don't respect him, I'm going to ask why. And then that will reveal maybe, I don't know, maybe I dated someone's sister. Maybe I, (laughs) you know, like I always say that, you know, like did I I actually hit on your girlfriend, you know, Um, you never know. So they shouldn't be afraid to get feedback as well. So ask that question. Am I being respected? If not, what's the problem? What is the relationship between your martial arts background and survival training? Is there a, is there like, does one help the other in terms of what you're doing one or the other? Like, what is the, like, is there like a, like, what is the relationship there? Because it's super fascinating. I mean, I'd love to know why you chose the Filipino martial arts, scrima, like that type of stuff. But like, how does that connect to survival and vice versa? Okay. So very, very quick story. Uh, the reason why I, I got into Filipino martial arts, I'm half Filipino. Um, so it's quite literally okay. in my form. Yeah. Um, the other, the other interesting thing is, uh, Chris Syak, the founder of Syak Kali. Uh, yeah. I told my dad about him one time and he goes, Hmm. And he came down to a training and it turns out that when my dad was in the Philippines, again, my dad came to this country as a doctor in 65. Uh, my dad was an intern of Chris Syak's, Pomona Chris Syak's wow. grandfather in the Philippines. So my family, like my, my dad's <laughs> brother, my uncle, and Pamanatuan's father, right? So my uncle and Chris Ayak's father were best friends in Manila. And they used to go to bars together and hang out together. So I will always be a part of Sayak. It's it's awesome. closely ingrained. And our families, the Estella family and the Sayak family, we're, we've been bonded through time and history, right? So now the interesting thing about survival and about uh, martial arts is that many people that come to the survival classes have some background in some type of martial art. And I'm going to include firearms as a martial art because it's projectile range weapon. Well, I can use martial arts as a filter to describe something. So when I'm showing people how to use their knives, many times I'll see guys looking down and they're carving with their knives. I'm like, where's your workspace? And they're like, oh, that's when I bring my pistol in here and I can look through the front sight as I'm doing a reload. I'm like, okay, bring your knife up and work in your workspace. And they're like, that makes sense. I'm like, yeah, you know, cause you're a lot stronger when you bring things in. We don't do yeah. reloads with our arms extended. And they're like, Oh my God. I, but I can apply that filter 
of martial arts and, and, and survival skills very easily. Same thing if I'm teaching like a combatives class, right? And we do a little bit of grappling. And, and at Fieldcraft, we don't teach combatives. Uh, but when we do these specialized courses, maybe I'm brought in to show like, okay, this is how you restrain someone. This is how you, you know? So I'll say, all right, if someone does this, you're in quote, quote, survival mode. Uh, how many minutes do you have with your body being deprived of oxygen for survival? They're like three minutes. I'm like, okay, well, a good choke, you're out in about seven seconds. Right. And they're like, oh my God. you know. And now I'm blending those two worlds together with a common language that people understand. And it just makes the instruction that much more powerful because it installs the material quicker since they know how to use that Rosetta stone to figure out what I'm talking about. Just fascinating. And I love that you're so passionate too about it. Sometimes when you talk to people about what they do, it's like you can kind of sense like they're getting towards the end of whether it's their career or whether they want to keep doing it. But it's like for you to be that still involved and immersed in it, it says something to that field. And it's, I think more people, whether it's even following on social media or reading your book or just maybe not even you, maybe someone else that's in that field where it's like, it's all life-saving stuff. It's just so cool to see people like you. They're actually at the forefront and give a shit. Yeah. Thanks, John. And you know, I, I'll always say this too. I don't consider some of the folks that you mentioned earlier as like competitors. You know, I like Nicola Pellian, she wrote one of the the recommendations for my book. Yeah. Right. Cool. Sweetheart of a, of a person. Um, and she runs some great programs. We have an herbalist naturalist here, Kate. I don't consider those two competitors because they're both in the field of getting people more educated. Right. Yes. I, I think of competition as people who say don't train at all. I, look, I don't care if you train in Taekwondo, Kenpo Karate, Kung Fu, <clears throat> Western boxing, jujitsu. I don't care. Do something as opposed to just sit on the couch, the right. couch is my competitor, right? I don't care if you say, you know, go to Maine Primitive Skills School or Jack Mountain Bushcraft or SE Training or Nature Reliance School. Do they're something. All they're, yeah, and they're making people better prepared because would I ever turn away someone saving my <laughs> life who's trained with SE? Hell no. I want that person on the highway who's gone to Patrick Rollins and Ruben and like, they've learned how to use knives, right? They've learned how to do CPR. Like I want those people out there. So I kind of laugh when I hear of competitor schools trying to knock me down because it does happen and it is what it is. Um, and I say competitor schools because that's how they view themselves. And I'm like, dude, if you only knew, like I'll give credit where credit's due, you know, but there, it's funny when, when it does happen because it's so obvious, like, you know, my book on Amazon, you know, all the reviews and they're all super positive. Oh and yeah, you get the two one negative, two negative reviews back to back, and I'm like, hmm, was that an instructor at a course telling people to to put in two negative reviews? Like, what are the coincidences that I have like mostly ones? I'm sorry, mostly fives, and then suddenly there are two twos that come in back to back. Like, come on. Well, you it's said about like the whole ego thing, where it's like that one group starts fire three ways, you start two ways. Well, end of the day, you started the fire. Yeah. And, and the tools you had, it's like, what do you? That's what I don't get, man. Especially in my field, the ego of doing security for celebrities and bands and stuff. It's like at the end of the day, you're all the same team. You don't you don't want a yep. loss of life. You don't want injury. Everyone go home at night. It's like the minute you start bumping shoulders or I've done this training or I carry this six hour. It's like, dude, no one cares, man. Yeah, and and you know, for your field, like with personal security, private security, what happens if you start rooting for other private security firms to fail? Well, right. now celebrities are going to be hiring off-duty cops 
as opposed to other private security. Right. And now you're out of a job. You know what right. I mean? Like it's kind of like being on an airplane and hoping that the pilot has a seizure and there's no co-pilot and you crash into the mountains, you know, like right. go ahead, keep doing that. <laughs> well, yeah, seriously, this has been awesome. Uh, I want to thank you for jumping on here, Kevin. I know obviously Fieldcraft Survival and yourself, you're all over Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that. But if people want to sign up for a class, ask you a question, or just kind of see what's going on, where do you want to send people to for that? Uh, just email me, uh, Estella, E-S-T-E-L-A, at fieldcraftsurvival.com. I, I respond to every email. Um, if you guys message me on Instagram, realize I'm going to be replying on a phone and not on a keyboard. So I'm not going to give you the longest response, but in an email, I'll be thorough and believe it or not, you guys, I'm going to call you. So give me your number in the email and I'd rather talk to you than type it out. And we'll probably get a pretty good solution to whatever questions you have, uh, just through an honest conversation. So, uh, at Fieldcraft training, that's our North Carolina branch at Fieldcraft survival. That's our main office. Uh, at Estella Wild Ed, that's short for Estella Wilderness Education. That's my personal uh, IG. But guys, reach out to me. I'm always here to help you out. Before you go, you can, when you said you, the new North Carolina branch, when there's if there's a city, well, I don't know whether anywhere in the world where it's, well, there's no jungle, there's no woods per se. This type of class training could still be done in like a concrete jungle, right? Like a major city. Like this is stuff that is easily transferable into that you don't necessarily need the woods to know how to start a fire like or nor should you need the woods to learn how to start a fire correct yeah and i can teach land nav anyway if i have a map awesome. of an area i can teach land nav uh our medical instructors they travel with the kits so they can fly anywhere um usually if we're going into a new area we try to get students lined up before because at the end of the day we're a business right yeah, like we for have sure. and everything has gone up in price so you know, it's very difficult sometimes to run a course in a new area if we don't have the enrollment. We might have to cancel a course. But uh, but the survival stuff, I mean, in addition to the wilderness survival skills, I mean, I can do an urban seminar. And I don't fancy myself as an urban instructor, but I can show the basics of what you need to have uh, in your true everyday carry bag if you want right. to call it a out. I can show how to do a five-gallon bucket prep. I can show all these different skill sets and then blend it with you know, our other stuff that we do, like we have a personal security class where we do everything with Sims pistols and a role player in a blower suit. Nice. So there are a lot of courses and, oh yeah. And that's what, some of my favorite reps are when I get to be the bad guy. And yeah, for I, sure. I get, I get the shit kicked out of me. Joey uh, bag of donuts over here. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you guys can reach out to me. I'm happy to coordinate whatever and, and answer any questions you guys have. Oh, it's awesome, Kevin. Well, thank you for your time today. You got it, man. Oh, Hello. I'm just enjoying this nice fucking candle. Anyways, I'm John, the host of Spear Talk, and I want to talk to you about nice fucking candles. We are lucky to have nice fucking candles as a sponsor of the podcast. And if you use code SPEARTALK15, you get 15% off your first order, or use the affiliate link below to always get your candle needs through nice fucking candles. Nice fucking candles are 100% soy wax. They have a 65-hour burn time, maybe more, if you... Uh, nurse the flame a little bit maybe i don't know i'm not an expert on flames uh, or candles but i will say these things burn a long fucking time you ask you about the wick it's a double wick for even burning which is amazing and uh they come in three incredible flavors uh i'm not sure if you're going to be eating these candles but if you do like them the scents are eucalyptus and ginseng tobacco and fireside and seaside and driftwood once again uh nice fucking candles they are the candle company for spear talk and if you love candles and need a good scent to clear out your office, your room, your podcast room, your weight room, uh, your whatever you're doing in a room that smells like crap, 
use this candle. It's amazing. Thank you. Check them out. Love nice fucking candles. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Cundell from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.